BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, and welcome to the Parting Shot Podcast, Newsweek's weekly dose of everything pop culture. I'm your host, H. Allen Scott. Here you'll find everything from celebrity interviews to exclusive features in the magazine, and of course, everything that's happening in film, TV, music, and the arts. And guess what? I'm here to tell you exactly what you need to know each and every week, with new episodes dropping every single Friday. So what are we waiting for? Let's get started. What a week it has been. Things started off with a literal bang at the Super Bowl. Now, I'm told that a football game was played and that the Rams won. But honestly, I only saw the amazing halftime show with Eminem and Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. And wow, Mary J. Blige. What a show. Now, on today's podcast, I'll be chatting with Pamela Adlin. She's the creator and star, writer, director, producer. I'm pretty sure she probably handled craft services, too, on the FX series Better Things. It's such a funny chat. You're going to love it. I'll also be talking with the Emmy-winning filmmaker and journalist Stephen Leckart about his podcast Wild Things. It's an amazing look into the lives of Siegfried and Roy. They're the German-born illusionist and pop culture icons whose careers came to a sudden end after the tiger attack at their Las Vegas live show. But before that, here's your roundup of culture stories from this week. If the sports featured at the Winter Olympics aren't enough for you, then check out Megan Gunn's magazine story, Extreme Winter Sports for Adrenaline Junkies, in the latest issue of the magazine and online. Personally, my idea of a winter sport is getting from the car to the house as quickly as possible. If you've been obsessing over the Netflix series Inventing Anna, then head over to Newsweek.com to read Molly Mitchell's conversations with the show's stars, Anna Klumsky and Julia Garner. And yes, Molly did ask Garner about all those accents. Also at Newsweek.com, check out conversations with Ben Stiller, Adam Scott, and Patricia Arquette about their new Apple TV Plus show, Severance. It looks mysterious. Finally, if you're a fan of the Netflix series Vikings, then you'll want to watch the spinoff series Vikings Valhalla. And yes, you guessed it, we've got conversations with the cast over at Newsweek.com. And of course, stay tuned to the end of this episode for my 60-second roundup of everything you need to watch, read, and look out for in culture next week. But first, my chat with Pamela Adlin, right after this break. I do a lot of celebrity interviews, and I try hard to keep it casual in order to inspire a nice dialogue or conversation between me and the person I'm interviewing. But when it came time for me to interview Pamela Adlin, the star and creator, in addition to literally countless other titles, on the FX series Better Things, I honestly did not have to work hard at all at setting the tone, as you'll hear in my conversation with her. Adlin has won and been nominated for numerous awards for her semi-autobiographical comedy series, Better Things. And now, in its fifth and final season, Adlin is wrapping up the story on the fictional Fox family. The new season premieres February 28th on FX. 
no phones for one week. Okay, boomer. For the last time, I am not a boomer. I am Generation X. We are the coolest generation. <laughs> you guys are wondering, who is this lady? Is this you? Oh, no, 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 no. Google. Don't, don't Google me. You're wrapping up sort of the saga of the Fox family, if you will, on the final season of Better Things. Like, how, how does that feel to be ending this sort of baby of yours? Um, ending the baby? Oh <laughs> Go dark right from the beginning. <laughs> I love that. Um, didn't they make a movie about that? With uh, I think they've made Lawrence? a few movies about that. With Jennifer Lawrence, with Mia Farrow, Rosemary's Baby. I mean, there's lots of baby moments that are- Um, there. you know, so I wasn't really thinking about it and you're the, the fourth journalist who's like, uh, brings that up. And so I said to my team in post, I was like, I think everybody wants me to be sad. <laughs> but, um, you know, I feel, I don't feel um, sad. I feel really grateful that I was able to, to tell these stories and, and make my show and, um, you know, make a show that people like you really like, love you know and and are passionate about you know there's there, there's a, a really the the satisfaction in knowing that that um i was able to make something with everybody who worked with me so incredibly hard that is uh going to be evergreen and that people are like okay i want to oh god I want to feel that feeling. I'm going to go watch that episode of Better Things or this episode, you know, it, it it's um, that that excites me. Um, it, it makes me feel very happy that it, it can it live on in people's, you know, hearts and, and minds and, and they could go back to it the way, you know, I go back to stuff, you know, a hundred times that that I you know, like I haven't seen Chronicle in a while. I think I'm going to go put that in you know, or whatever. One of the things that I love about the show is that and what I love, I mean, what I responded to on Better Things was that it told three different generations of a family of women. And you don't see that on television like ever. Like the, only, the last time I think you can really say we saw authentic female generational stories in a comedy series was like Roseanne before they won the lottery. And like, you ne you never really saw that. You don't see that often on television. So like, was that important to you? Was that something that like was, was that, that stuck out for you? Um, okay, they won the lottery on Roseanne. Yeah. yeah, and like the last few seasons they won the lottery and it went a little crazy. I mean, I love Roseanne, but it went a little crazy. I didn't, I didn't follow her for that long. So, I mean, but one of my original hero television shows because Roseanne, uh, for me, I, it hit me on so many levels um, that, you know, these two people just flirted and were sexy and adorable with each other and that they just didn't look cookie cutter or whatever. That cracked my head open. I thought that was the most incredible thing and that she was so, you know, raw and everything. And the three generations, I love that, you know, and I grew up with family sitcoms and, and I grew up watching the shows where the parents would come in, like, 
you know, good times and the Jeffersons and, uh, you know, one day at a time and, and Maud, you know, but I didn't think about that. I just knew that I was telling this story that was based on my story. And it was, you know, obviously my mother's my muse and my boyfriend, duh. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, I guess that's all I get. <laughs> so, um, I'm so happy for you and your husband, H. Allen. Thank I you. have my mom. Well, I mean, you know, I haven't always had him and who knows? Things could change and I could write a TV show about it. Okay, there you go. <laughs> but yeah, it, 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 you know, it became very striking. And I think that like the show really was about this, this woman raising her three daughters. It wasn't about, you know, her, the sandwich generation of it all. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of worked out and it was a great way for me to work out. Like my mother driving me like crazy in the best kind of ways. Yes. And then, you know, finally realizing, Oh, she's funny. Mm -hmm. I'm going to not make this make me crazy. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to put it in my show in a, in a loving way, like turn the lens, you know? Yeah. That's something I wanted to ask you about. Do you ever find there's a line between like what you're willing to put into better things and what you want to keep private in about your life? Yeah. Yeah. There's a line, but I, I also know that, um, you know, even if I, because it's the whole framework of my life. And when I put things in that, you know, aren't real. Like it, like I say this to everybody ad nauseum, I'm not making a reality show. It's like, it's a very carefully constructed, um, thought out, you know, story, character, all of that stuff. That being said, you know, yes, I did start this show when I was a young single mom of three girls and well, not so young, like in my forties and you know, and with my English mother. So from then on, everything that happens will be ascribed to that daughter or me or my mom. So, I mean, where is the line? What's fiction and what's not fiction? I'm, I'm, you know, this is my, this is my canvas, you know? And so I do know that if something hits close to home and it makes me feel uncomfortable. It's going to be gold. Yeah. Yeah. You get excited. Don't you? (laughs) Yeah. Because it's like, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, then it's making you feel something and you know, it's going to work. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's one of the things that sort of, I love about the show is in watching it. I know that it's completely you, you know, you write, you direct, you executive produce, you star in it. Like it is you in every way, shape and form. And as someone who's a fan of yours, that's very exciting. And uh, did you ever see yourself going in that creative direction to have that kind of creative control over your own story? No, I mean, not even in my wildest dreams because I didn't have um, really any way to think that I could do that. I was so myopic. I was like, I'm an actor. I'm waiting for the phone to ring as an actor. 
And then it hit me a few years ago when I was doing a Q&A to, to an audience like at IFC in, in New York and, you know, and talking about the show and all these people love the show so much. And when I told them that the only school that I didn't get into was Tisch School of the Arts and I was so bummed and I was just like, children, let's take this story and realize it's not all, you know, it's not the end of the world because I mean, I look back and I'm like, I was always writing. I was always documenting. I was writing poetry. I was writing songs. I kept a journal since I was nine years old. I was taking photographs. I was shooting super eight. I was doing all of that stuff. I just never thought I was going to be doing it professionally all in one direction, you know? And so, um, I was the, I was the kid who was on the side and, and I was the, 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 the little, uh, raccoon actor who people would be like, get her out. I don't understand what that is. I would get replaced. You know, I was never, I never fit in. I was never, you know, I never looked the right way. I, you know, there was something that people didn't like about me. I remember being an actor and, and being outside of an audition holding sides and going over it. And back in the day, we used to go on auditions and we would all sit in a room together and look at each other, like with our sides. Mortifying. Oh my God. Mortifying. I remember sitting outside a, a waiting room and you could hear the actor in front of you. You could hear them auditioning. And I remember this happened so many times and I would be like, what am I even practicing for? They're bad. Yeah. What the fuck? And then they would come out and they would be like, you know, like, totally. Let's go to Starbucks. <laughs> exactly. And, I, and it would not matter yeah. how you read or whatever. It, it was about a, a, a look or a feeling or who you knew or anything like that. So once you stop worrying about things like that and, and stop looking at other people for approval or whatever, um, you know, you, you, you grow. And I feel like I, my abilities came from, uh, you know, not abilities, but like where I am now mm -hmm. came from me making decisions yeah. creatively and practically to keep moving this train forward and it all fell into place and 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 for and, it to fall in place you know like you said when you started the show when you were in your 40s you were a single, single mom of three kids I mean that's not something a lot of we don't see on television a lot and we don't see people succeeding at that point in their lives with that life situation that they yeah. have and it's it's refreshing it's really it's kind of just like it's something we need more of yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's more of that now because yeah. I don't think that people have that whole, you know, I think it's less judgmental now, even though it feels insane now. Well, that's something I wanted to ask you about too. There is, especially in comedy and sitcoms and just for people who write funny things, there is a lot of talk about like cancel culture and being afraid of sort of saying certain things or doing certain things or maybe being more reserved. Do you find 
your does that even come into your equation when you write anything with sort of how the culture is right now in a lot of ways? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it was a big part of this season because I had a whole new writer's room and everybody was on Zoom and people didn't know each other yeah. and people are afraid. Yeah. You know, and so fear makes you boring. <laughs> there. So get true. the t-shirt, stencil. <laughs> Someone get the dot com. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so if you just, you know, so I would have, there would be certain things that we were talking about or doing that people were dialing back on um, in every way mm. in the past, you know, couple of years. And I'm like, well, you have to remember what this show is. This show walks the hairy edge. That's what it is. We say and do all these uncomfortable things because it's a way for people to sit there and look and go, oh, she's being an asshole. I don't like that. Or I don't want to be perceived that way. Or, oh, that's so great. Like, I wish I thought of that, you know? You have to, you know, kind of lead the charge yeah. in, in terms of that. And, and also, you know, be willing to, to screw things up. One of the things that I don't think a lot of people outside of the industry know is that <laughs> you're like an insanely prolific voice actor. I was looking just over your resume. I mean, I know your work, but like, I didn't know it was that substantial even. You've won Emmys for it. How different is it to be doing voice work than it is to be doing sort of like regular on-camera acting? Oh, there's no, there's no comparison. Like being in the studio and doing voices and working with people who know what you can do and um, just the, the freedom. And um, it, it's, it, I mean, that was the biggest gift that ever came to my life. And, and, um, I mean, I couldn't even pay the rent. And then I started working in, in voice. I was work. I was in radio first. Mm -hmm. It was all radio. And, and I really wanted to get into animation, but there's like, uh, it's hard. Like you, at that point it was, you do one or the other. And so finally I broke through, but, um, it's, it's, it's an incredible thing. I mean, I went through three pregnancies while I did, you know, I was on nine different series and it didn't matter, yeah. you know, and even one show I was bent over doing yeah, King of the Hill table reads like this because I was having an internal problem and I would do them from home and I'd be like on my bed like this going, Oh, I got to go to the bathroom, you know, but <laughs> It's like, I don't Having know. Contractions midline read. Exactly. <laughs> but that's that's just the greatest thing because then you don't have to get your hair and makeup done. And it, you're just, it's just, it's all you. And, and, you know, but, but that being said, you have to be willing to fail at something. You have to, you, you just have to go for it. You can't just try to, you know, be cool and skate by because that doesn't work in voiceover. You gotta, you gotta play with the music in your voice and add colors and mm -hmm. take out texture and all that stuff. Wild. The other thing that I, the last, my last question for you, I didn't know this and I 
audibly got very excited this morning when I found this out <laughs> that um, so my I used to work at AIDS Walk here in Los Angeles and my boss <laughs> with Leaf Green. Yes, my boss was Leaf Green. I saw yeah. that you were in Greece, too. That was your first credit. And I freaked out. I love that Greece too is your first credit. I love that we have a mutual connection through Leaf, who is Leaf Green is the best person in the world. One of the wildest people. I mean, if you ever get stuck in an elevator with someone, get stuck in an elevator with Leaf Green. That is I'm sorry, but Leaf Green is the best. And like, have you ever seen his art? Like Yes, I have. Oh my God. And have you ever seen him in the in the TV movie that he did that Cloris Leaf played his mother? Yes. When he's playing the piano and, and he's blind and he's crying. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> anyway, I had to, I had to share that mutual connection that we have, but I was blown away by how, like, I mean, you were kind of like a child actor you were doing, you were, you, yeah. you you're so like infused in sort of that eighties Hollywood sort of moment of sitcom and working and making the, doing the work. How, I mean, you've done so much. How does like some of that, even the struggle of your earlier work as a child or a young adult influence the show and the character that you do now? Like, does, does it influence your work at all? That struggle you had? Oh, yes. Years? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's Sam. That's why Sam Fox exists, because she grew up, you know, in that world. And then, you know. It, you know, child actor and then just like kind of not being able to pay rent and then getting fired or replaced or all of that kind of stuff. I mean, that's it's totally. Yeah. I mean, all, all the way that stuff made me feel mm-hmm. um, informs the the entire better things vibe. Wow. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. I've had such a lovely time talking with you. Thank you so much. What do we really know about Siegfried Fischbacher and Roy Horn, the illusionists and pop culture icons best known as Siegfried and Roy? Sure, they had a mega-famous Vegas act that generated over $1 billion in sales. And of course, everybody remembers the tragic tiger attack that happened during one of their live performances, which left Roy forever scarred from the incident and forced the pair into early retirement. But what else do we know about them? Not much. Well, Emmy-winning filmmaker and journalist Stephen Leckhart set out to learn more about them in his fantastic podcast, Wild Things, an Apple original podcast produced by Atwill Media. On October 3rd, 2003, a tiger attacked Roy Horn of Siegfried and Roy, one of the most famous and infamous magic acts in history. For 44 years, they performed 30,000 shows for 50 million people, generating well over a billion dollars in ticket sales. But given just how mega-famous they were, it's remarkable how little we actually know about them. I spoke with Stephen about Siegfried and Roy, their impact on pop culture, and how the Wild Things podcast reveals never-before-known information about the mysterious illusionists and that shocking tiger attack. What was it about Siegfried and Roy that, I mean, what was your background with Siegfried and Roy, and what interested you in doing a podcast about them? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm a child of the 80s, so they always loomed large. Um, I knew who they were. My parents went and saw them. Uh, I didn't get to go because I was at sleepaway camp. And I just remember them coming home and when I got back from camp and them telling me what they saw at this show. And it just sounded so far-fetched and there wasn't a Google. I couldn't go find it. So I only could see, you know, still images of them. And I don't think the still images really did justice to just how zany and unbelievable and hyperbolic the show was. And then when the attack happened in 2003, I remember vividly having two sort of reactions. One was, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get a chance to see them. And I can't believe that this happened and how tragic. And then the second was, wait a second, what happened? Yeah. Because on the, on the surface, you think, well, yeah, I mean, they're tigers and accidents happen. On the other hand, for 44 years on stage, these two men did this same act and routine with these tigers and nothing like that had happened on stage. Yeah. So it always planted that seed. And then, you know, along comes the pandemic. And uh, I met a wonderful podcast producer uh, named Will Malnati, who had a podcast company. I'd never made a podcast before. And we started chatting about our sort of obsession with these two men and what they built. And uh, I like to say that, you know, some people took the pandemic to figure out how to make bread. And yeah. I learned how to make a podcast. This is your sourdough starter. Exactly. And it's, uh, it's less, you know, there's less carbs. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's always good. Well, before we get to the attacks, that's definitely something I want to discuss. What, what, there's something about Siegfried and Roy and sort of how um, flamboyant, and I use that in the literal sense, very flamboyant show. Now, I'm not talking about necessarily their sexualities, but how flamboyant their performances were almost at a level of sort of Liberace where, you know, the audience and the relationship with the flamboyancy of the people on the stage, the, there was almost a kind of a disconnect. So you had like, like, I remember like I'm Midwestern, middle America people being obsessed with Siegfried and Roy. And here I am, you know, a young gay kid thinking like, you, you guys know, like, you know what you're watching, right? Like what I, th there's, so what, can you talk about sort of the flamboyancy of Siegfried and Roy and how how people were attracted to them? What appealed to them about about Siegfried and Roy? Well, I think, you know, from the beginning, there's an inherent danger to what they did. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, you drive on a freeway and there's a car accident. You stop to see what happened because that's just curiosity and who we are. I think magicians in general, some of the best ones, and this is true for performers, but especially magicians, hyperbole works really well, mm -hmm. right? Like you don't like saw a woman's arm off, you saw her entire body off. Everything, there's no subtlety, everything is big. And I think Siegfried and Roy together took what was normally hyperbolic and dialed it up even beyond what anyone had done. And part of that was the animals. Part of it was their personas. And when I say personas, I mean also just the way they carried themselves on stage. It yeah. wasn't just the accents, it was the costumes. And it was the way that they, you know, the show was so big and there were costume changes. They didn't come out just dressed the same, you know, throughout the whole show. And I think that that added to this sense of pomp and circumstance that for them, was fun and probably kept it interesting, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, and that was their, they, they, you literally got to see their ambition grow as the show grew. 
Um, and then you factor in the question of, okay, well, how could people possibly come from anywhere in America and see these men and how they behaved and not necessarily wonder, you know, what was going on in terms of their private lives? Yeah. Um, you know, and that's that's something we cover in the podcast at length. And, you know, my take on it is really if if two magicians or entertainers were coming up today in their, let's say, late 20s or early 30s, you, it wouldn't be that big of a mystery and it wouldn't be that big of a deal if they were to say that they were here's my sexual identity or not or a couple or whatever yeah anything yeah. but that's because we have the benefit of time and we've inherited a world that is still imperfect and still rife with hate and you know terrible things um on the other hand though the world has moved forward uh, in a way that you know allows that to to happen and so what we tried to do with the podcast is put us put ourselves in context to that and so that you can kind of think somewhat sympathetically to them rather than think, well, why didn't they just say who they were and why didn't they plant that flag? And that's why we tell the story of all these entertainers who had their careers derailed because of their sexual identity. Yeah. And you do it so well. I mean, it's 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 such an interesting point that I think a lot of people who were fans, I know like my mom, she never even thought of Siegfried and Roy. They were just cool. They were just campy. They were weird. It was very similar to Liberace, which my grandma loved Liberace, but I wouldn't necessarily say she was out there leading pride parades. You know, she was just sort of a fan of the show. And it's, it's a, the podcast does a really good job of sort of laying that out. Gentlemen, the superstars of magic, the mystifying, the most outstanding act in show business, Siegfried and Roy. Siegfried and Roy. Siegfried and Roy. The more successful Siegfried and Roy become, speculation surrounding their personal lives only grows. Siegfried, it's a very unusual relationship you two have. That's true. We are brothers. We are actually more than brothers. Are you lovers? Siegfried and Roy are very private people. No one knew anything about their personal life. We stimulate the fantasy of the audience. Because without fantasy, there is nothing. Their whole lives were a facade. And then when this tiger incident occurred, it was an extension of that. Another thing that the podcast does is the attack. And that's something you brought up earlier that was so horrific, so shocking for it to be... The, I mean, in a lot of ways, you would think, how, how did it take 44 years for it to happen? I mean, it just seemed like such an inevitable thing, but they were so good with the animals. And so the animals were so trained that this really was, it seemed like a freak accident. And and if you could explain some of like the the weird things about the attack and, and sort of what the news put out there and really the truth behind the attack and how it sort of came about. Well, so for starters, the attack happened during what is the quietest, most understated moment in the entire show. Mm -hmm. So throughout the rest of the show, you have dancers on stage, dozens of dancers in costumes and doing twirls, and you have you know, uh, magic tricks where, where they're either levitating in the air, some of the tigers, they're on balls, they're coming out of these little boxes and you have no idea, and it's big and it's loud and there's smoke and there's lights. This moment when this attack occurred, when this incident went down, um, it was quiet mm. and it was only Roy on stage with one tiger and he was walking towards the edge of the stage onto what's called a passerelle. 
And the passerelle is a stage that extends beyond into the crowd and goes behind some of the audience. So he was really kind of immersed and enmeshed right down near the audience. There were people that were maybe six feet away from him. And so it was in this quiet kind of moment that's supposed to um, show off his bond with these animals. He was, and normally what happens is he will, you know, sort of talk to the crowd a little bit, walk with the tiger on a, a little, basically his hand is either on a little leash or around the collar. And at a certain moment in time, the tiger is supposed to get up on its hind legs and put its paws, its front paws on his shoulders and do a yeah. slow dance. And that was going to happen when all of a sudden things go completely awry. And what we do in the podcast is, you know, in it's eight parts, we come back to that night from different perspectives, starting from the first episode and then all the way to the end, um, spoiler alert, the last episode, which comes out in a few weeks, we come back to it and we, we give you different perspectives and new information that hopefully tells you at least very clearly what happened because many different people have many different perspectives on what they think happened. And then of course there's a video tape that um, people spent a lot of time trying to get their hands on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the videotape is the thing that really sort of stands out to me how and, and the different stories about what exactly happened. I mean, I think Roy said he had a stroke in um, either before or after. Right. Wasn't there something about a stroke even? Yeah. So um, the story changed. So um, when the attack happened that night, um, their manager went on to television news and sort of told one kind of story about what had happened. Yeah. And then as the weeks unfolded, then Siegfried was doing media with the manager. And then there was a different story that was sort of told. And then by the time Roy recovered and then years later was giving press about it, he did make this claim that he had had a stroke and that that had precipitated him sort of breaking the routine, which spooked the tiger. But then his claim um, is that the tiger was dragging him to safety to, to save yeah. and help him. And, you know, it's one thing to sort of change the story as you learn more information. It's another to sort of make a claim that a lot of people find hard to believe. Especially about okay. a tiger, I mean. Completely, but on the other hand, um, these are magicians. And so they're always doing things and saying things that seem impossible. So does that mean we should believe it? Um, and I'm not a medical professional, nor am I an animal handler. So my job was really just to talk to smart people and get their take on it. And in yeah. the podcast, you'll hear, we interview a lot of different people to get to the bottom of it. That's so interesting. Yeah. The thing when, when, when I remember hearing the claim about the stroke and that it was the animal just trying to protect Roy, I mean, I'm a journalist, so I'm a bit of a skeptic, but part of me is like, it's a tiger. Tigers aren't concerned about protecting anything other than food. <laughs> like that's, that's all they want. But yet another thing is like, maybe it is right. Maybe, maybe the animal was really protecting the person who feeds him, the person who cares for him. I don't know. And that's, what's so great about the podcast is you give lots of different directions on how it could go or how the story could be explained, which is fascinating. Thank you. And and that's why we focus on two different investigations that were conducted. So we're doing our own investigation, but then we're investigating the investigators. And one yeah. investigation was conducted by the USDA, which, you know, is a government agency. And most people, including myself, have no idea until I made this podcast that they have their own investigative unit because they oversee the use of wild and exotic animals in public settings across America, right? Like, 
You know, when you go to the supermarket to buy milk, it has a USDA sticker on it. When you would go to a Siegfried and Roy show, it doesn't have a sticker on it, but the USDA is who regulates the license that Siegfried and Roy had to have in order to have this show and to keep their animals. And so they sent out an investigator to go figure out, well, this was, was this a horrific accident? Was there some kind of animal welfare issue that might have caused it? Was someone in the audience maybe responsible for triggering the tiger? And so I just was fascinated as to who is that person that does that job and what was his or her experience along the way. And we we got to the detective and told his story. And then the second investigation was conducted by the police department in Las Vegas. Yeah. And specifically, and this blew my mind, um, he works in Homeland Security. And, and why would a Homeland Security detective be called in for a tiger mauling a magician? And, and just that question alone was like, well, we got to figure that one out. And so we spent months and finally, I remember getting the detective on the phone. You know, he's retired now. He's no longer at the department because uh, this was 18 years ago. And, I, and he couldn't believe I was calling him, and I couldn't believe he agreed to talk to me. An incident occurred on stage in which Roy sustained a serious injury from one of the tigers. We heard one of the stagehands yell, cat loose. There was so much, so much blood. This was hell on earth. Shortly after the tiger attack, the media spin has already begun. After over 30,000 live performances, uh, this one tragic accident is obviously an anomaly. But what if the attack isn't an anomaly? What if it's actually just misdirection? Look, and you're doing these interviews, and you're saying that you've had no accidents. Those words are like a stab to your victim's heart. So my last question for you is, uh, so uh, Horn died last year or in 2020 of COVID-19, correct? And then, and then Fischbacher died of pancreatic cancer in 2021. So they died within a year of each other. I wanted to know in the end, you know, with their passing and sort of the end of the story in a lot of ways, what do you think will be their legacy and, and will they like, will they be remembered? I mean, obviously they'll be remembered fondly, but do you think that this mauling kind of tainted a bit of the legacy of Siegfried and Roy? You know, I sure hope it doesn't. And, and even as somebody who made this thing that, that hinges, you know, a lot around what happened that night, I think that what they achieved in their lives shouldn't be permanently colored or stained just by the tragedy. And if you listen to our last episode, especially, uh, it's beyond that. And we tried really hard to make sense of their careers, their lives, what they meant to America, and I think globally, you know, pop culture. And what I would ar what I would argue is that what they did and who they were and how they did it, we'll never see anything like that again. You know, pop singers reinvent themselves and we see, you know, ever since Elvis all the way to today, it's not that too dissimilar, you know, no offense to Justin Bieber, but we've, we've seen that, right? And magicians too, they have a, way, a tendency to build off the things that come behind them um, and grow. But the way that Siegfried and Roy did what they did and how they did it, it was super unique. Yeah. And because of the animal factor, we will never see a show like that again. Wild. Well, thank you so much, Stephen Luckert. The podcast is Wild Things, Siegfried and Roy. It's so, so good. Available everywhere, right? Yes. I love that. Thank you. Thank you.
your roundup of everything you need to watch, read, and look out for in pop culture next week in under 60 seconds. There's a lot going on, so prepare to be entertained. Start the clock. At the box office, there's Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg's action-adventure film Uncharted. And Channing Tatum is back with his heartwarming film Dog. Spoiler alert, it's about a dog. A new book called Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, The Wild and True Story of Mad Max by Kyle Buchanan comes out on February 22nd. Hooray for the Riff Raff releases their new album, Life on Earth, on February 18th. Cue that dramatic music. That's right, the original Law & Order is back after a 12-year hiatus. The new iteration of the series stars Hugh Dancy, Jeffrey Donovan, and Anthony Anderson. Sam Waterston from the original series also returns. Also on TV this week, the fourth season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel returns to Amazon Prime. The second season of the Steve Carell comedy Space Force returns to Netflix. The season five premiere of Snowfall is coming to FX. And The Walking Dead returns to AMC to finish out season 11. What did I miss? Let me know what you're watching this week. You can find me at H. Allen Scott on everything. And thanks for listening to the Parting Shot Podcast. For more on the latest news and podcasts, head to Newsweek.com and follow Newsweek on all social platforms. I'll be back next week with Oscar-nominated actress Amanda Seyfried talking about what it was like to play Elizabeth Holmes, the disgraced former health tech executive charged with fraud, in her new Hulu drama, The Dropout. Until then, have a great week. 